The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> I don't think I've taught on New Year's Day in a very long time, so I didn't know how many people would show up. This is great. I'm glad some people showed up. <laughs> the topic that um, I've been exploring for the last number of weeks is um, looking at our experience um, looking at our practice from the perspective of some of the wholesome qualities, the beautiful qualities that are cultivated, that happen as we practice, as we, as we look at our experience with mindfulness, as we practice mindfulness. And also there are qualities that, we, um, that's hel- that is helpful to kind of orient around, to... to um, to um, recognize when these qualities appear and to actually encourage them. And these, these are ten qualities. It's a list of ten qualities. And they're, um, the, the Pali term is the paramis. And the translation of that term is perfections. It's kind of a funny name for a list, the ten perfections. But it's mythologically, or what's it maybe with the right word? It's kind of like... Um, it is said that in the lives of the Buddha before he became the Buddha, these were the qualities he perfected to purify his heart and mind, to prepare himself to wake up. And so they are considered the qualities that really support awakening. And these ten qualities are generosity, ethics, Renunciation, wisdom, patience, truthfulness, resolve. I missed one. Energy, wisdom, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, um, loving kindness, and equanimity. And up till now, I've talked about... um, the first six, and tonight the two that I had um, planned on talking about, which seems appropriate for New Year's Day, are truthfulness and resolve. So um, that's the theme for tonight. And, um, but I think I'll talk, start a little bit by, by putting these qualities into context. You know, in our practice, a lot of what we talk about here at uh, the center is being mindful. And that's, you know, this is, a, this is a, a, a mindfulness practice that we, we cultivate here. And a lot of what we do as we practice mindfulness is we see what's happening in our bodies and minds. And much of that is not necessarily pleasant sometimes. We end up... Um, kind of orienting at times around what feels hard. And this is actually how the Buddha, when he turned and looked at his mind and body, he also discovered that it's, you know, this is hard. This, it's, it's hard being a human being. There's suffering that happens. And um, he kind of reoriented around suffering to uh, not have the idea or the opinion that, well, what I need to do about suffering is fix it. Instead, he began to orient around suffering to look at, well, what is this suffering? What does it mean to... Un- what, let's under- I want to understand what suffering is. And that exploration of understanding suffering began to um, give him a completely different perspective about being a human being. A different perspective than you know, the way we mostly go through our lives is to try to get what we want, to get rid of what we don't want, thinking that that's the way to find happiness, that we'll find happiness by mm, collecting things, gathering things, accumulating things. And um, what, we, what the Buddha found is that actually that accumulation process keeps us trapped in a way, keeps us trapped in a cycle of wanting to have things, endlessly wanting to have things, endlessly wanting to... Um, get the next thing uh, rather than ever actually being satisfied with 
what's going on in our lives. And so a lot of the orientation with mindfulness practice is to begin to understand our suffering, is to begin to understand what's going on in our minds, that we continually want things, this, this cycle of, of wanting to have things and wanting to get rid of things. So the, um, this orientation around looking at suffering can... Sometimes we can get the sense that the Buddhist practice is kind of a downer. We're always talking about suffering. We're always talking about how to understand suffering and how to understand the causes of suffering. But the, um, the teachings of the Buddha include both the understanding of what creates the struggle, the states of mind of greed, aversion, delusion, confusion, wanting, not liking, all of those states that lead us towards reactive emotions and struggle in our lives. And um, so that's one side of the equation. But the other side, with right effort, when he talked about wise effort, is not only to understand the suffering, but to understand the states of mind that support us to move towards happiness and peace. These include um, states like these paramis. Kindness, balance of mind, patience, generosity, wisdom, energy, and truthfulness, and resolve, a kind, of a, a kind of a determination that this practice is important to me. So that's the context for exploring these paramis, that it's within the, the larger context of our practice that we... Um, not, it's not just about looking at suffering. There, there are some qualities of mind that support us. So truthfulness. Now truthfulness, the, the word that, that um, word in English, it tends to be connected with speaking truthfully. And that's a piece of the puzzle here, is to speak truthfully. But I think this is a deeper um, meaning to what this quality of truthfulness is. It, I think it includes, well, the, the suttas say that that which is true has an undeceptive nature. So that's kind of the definition of truthfulness in the suttas. That which has an undeceptive nature. And that would include speaking truth in, um, in our kind of conventional way. But it also... And it it would include non-deceptiveness in our actions as well. But it it includes, I think, a deeper deeper sense of not deceiving ourselves about the nature of our experience, about what's actually happening in our our lives, of what's going on. I mean, the... the, um, I was just on my way over here listening to a um, an NPR um, broadcast around memory. And, you know, we can think that we know what our memories are and we might speak the truth from our memories. You know, this this person did this thing or, you know, that person, I did this or I saw this. And what this um, radio broadcast was really highlighting was that our memories are completely constructed and very unreliable. Um, that you know we we can completely construct something by suggested ideas, suggested thoughts, and then truly believe that we are remembering something accurately. The story uh, was about um, six teenagers who had witnessed a murder and who believed they had seen the face of the person who had killed the person. And um, that, uh, there was a conviction, convicted entirely on eyewitness evidence. And um, that person uh, was convicted and went to jail for life and um, 
There was somebody who understood how memory worked and understood that, you know, this, that that eyewitness conviction is not so uh, reliable and also happened to understand something about the nature of sight. And um, this eyewitness, eyewitnessing happened at 7 o'clock in the evening in the middle of January in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, So it was past, past twilight. And um, the person, uh, the, the scientist basically went out to that location at that time of day, the same, there was not a moon up that night, and uh, looked and based on his knowledge and understanding of um, how the eye works also, not only is he a memory expert, he was an eye expert, but um, he, uh, he realized that an accurate eyewitness um, identification at that level of light, they would have had to have been 18 inches from the person's face. And they were like six feet, eight feet away. But every single teenager identified the same person and they convicted him based on that. And uh, fortunately, in this case, the... Um, the um, there was a retrial after 21 years. I mean, fortunately, 21 years this guy's been in prison. But the, um, there was a retrial, or actually the, there was a request for a retrial, and the, um, the scientist said to the judge, I think you need to go out there and see this situation at that time. And they actually re- kind of did a scenario. They had a car drive by, because what it was is a drive-by shooting. They had a, the car drive by and the judge standing on the curb where, with the car driving by. And um, the, the, the scientist said, they, actually, I want the car to stop here. And the, the judge was standing about four feet away from the car. And... Um, he said, I want you to see whether you think you can identify the person in the car. And that they, they had the car stop. I mean, it wasn't even driving by. And the, the, he said, you can take as long as you want. And he looked, and the judge looked and looked and looked. And he saw basically a black screen. There was nothing that, no identifying features that he could see. And with that, he said, I'm... I'm going to free that guy so he can participate in his defense if need be and um, we'll have a retrial. Well, actually, there was no request for a retrial. I mean, once the, once the person was freed, there was no, no, nobody came forward to say, yes, we want to retry this guy. So he basically was freed after 21 years in prison. And uh, what the, this guy as a memory expert was saying was, you know, all six of those teenagers believed they were telling the truth. They believed they had a memory of seeing this person. And so what we think of as truth, <laughs> you know, what we think of as truth is so um, unreliable. It is so unreliable. So, you know, this, this is a question. What can we know as truth? And what, what actually is what the Buddha talked about as truth? And what he talked about as truth was something um, not so much about truth of content of experience. Like the truth of, did I see this person or did I know that thing? He more was interested in the truth of the nature of what happens to us. And that is, that experience is impermanent. It's unreliable as a place for finding lasting happiness. And it's basically that, that there's not an I here or a me here that um, is an, an, an enduring entity that continues. There's a process. There's a process here, but not a thing, a, a, a me. There's not a me here. And so these, these are kinds of different levels of truth that the Buddha is pointing to. And we have to deal with the truth of sound tonight. Yeah. <laughs> 
and impermanence of sound. (laughs) It may come back. (laughs) So I think that there's a couple pieces around truthfulness. One is around not deceiving ourselves as to what truth is. This is huge, I think. This is really huge for us to be honest with ourselves about what we actually think to be true versus know to be true. And the Buddha pointed to, well, we can know things are impermanent. We can know they are unreliable. And we can actually know they are not self. That one is harder to see. <laughs> well, well, I don't know how much we'll get into that tonight. And then resolve. I want to I talk a little bit about both of them and then tie them together. Resolve is a kind of a determination towards the practice. I mean, resolve, here it is, New Year's Day. You know, we usually think about resolve on New Year's Day is, you know, okay, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to, you know, go to the gym or I'm going to not browse the internet so much or, you know, not get addicted to my iPhone or, you know, whatever, you know, that, that we, you know, we, we, we have that kind of idea in mind about resolve. And it's a similar kind of notion of commitment. You know, I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna really. I want to. This is important. You know that 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 is the kind of nature of resolve. That it's a, a sense that we have that we want our lives to head in a certain direction, and we want to aim ourselves that way. That's kind of what resolve is. But in this sense of the term resolve, with respect to our uh, practice and with respect to this quality, it is a resolve towards waking up to resolve towards freeing the heart from greed, from aversion, from confusion. It follows from truthfulness, I think, because um, in order to see the truth, in order to really um, understand our uh, experience as it is, see things as they are, it takes some amount of dedication to watching experience. Because our, the way our minds work seems to be deceptive. Our minds tend to create the illusion that there is permanence, tend to create the illusion that there's something satisfying, and tend to create the illusion that there is a self. And so, you know, to um, even hear these ideas and to think, wow, that sounds a little strange, but, well, intellectually I know things are impermanent, but actually do we really know things are impermanent? So to, uh, to... have a resolve to kind of look in our experience. What can we understand? What can we um, see as we directly look at our experience? The, the, uh, the text, the Buddhist text, offer four resolves for us to contemplate. And I like this list. In this, in this translation, the word, the word for resolve is aditana in Pali. And it basically means to stand with, something like that. To stand with or to stand upon. And so that, that creates that sense of, yes, I'm going I'm to head in that direction. I'm going to head that way. And so sometimes... Resolve, or this word aditana, is translated as foundation. It is the foundation upon which our freedom depends. And there are four of these foundations. The foundation of wisdom, of truth, of letting go, and of peace. And so these, the, you know, these kind of the Buddha is pointing to, for, to us as kind of beacons. 
You know, this is kind of a direction for us to head towards wisdom, towards truth, towards letting go, and towards peace. And of these, he says, we should not neglect wisdom, we should preserve the truth, we should cultivate relinquishment, and train for peace. And so there's a connection, I think, between these two, between truth and resolve. Right there in this, it, in this definition of resolve, it connects back to truth. That, that we resolve to understand the truth, to preserve the truth. And the, um, you know, the, the kind of encounter with truth, the encounter with the teachings of the Buddha, for some of us, and I think for you're, you're sitting here in this room listening to the teachings of the Buddha, so you know, there's some sense of at least curiosity about this practice and the teachings. And that, you know, that sense of curiosity leads to a sense of engagement. Of faith in the teachings or curiosity about the teachings or confidence that, well, maybe this will be helpful leads to a, an engagement. And that is where resolve comes from. And so we encounter the, the wisdom, the truth, the, well, we could say we encounter what is described as truth in the Buddhist teaching, this statement, the statements around experience is impermanent, unreliable, not self. I mean, that is a kind of a, a, a statements of truth. And yet they're all, they also can be understood as insights, as re- recognitions. They're not simply truths to be believed. They are truths to be experienced. And it is the experience of those truths the direct experience of impermanent, of impermanence, that frees us from the desire to hold on to things, believing that they're permanent. It is the direct experience of the unreliability of all experience, the direct experience that there's nothing out there that actually lasts for long enough to be stable enough to hold on to, to to have lasting happiness. The direct experience of the unreliability frees the heart from the wish to hold on to something that's unreliable. So the, um, these two connect that we, that the, the teachings of truth aren't simply about believe this. It's kind of like put them up on a shelf and say, yes, I believe in impermanence. I believe in unreliability. That doesn't do us much good. We have to engage with the teachings. We have to engage with the practice of mindfulness and begin to experience for ourselves the truth of the unreliability, the impermanent nature of experience. And that takes resolve to actually engage. That takes resolve. And resolve is what begins to show us, it, it, it weaves back, because as we resolve and as we practice, as we engage, it begins to actually show us. We begin to experience the truth. We begin to experience some letting go. We begin to experience some peace, some ease, some of these, these other foundations, these other um, places where, we, where the heart opens to freedom, the foundations of wisdom, of truth, of letting go, and of peace. So around, I'll just say a few more things and then uh, open it up for some conversation. Um, Another piece around truth, what I said earlier around the, we should preserve the truth. We should not neglect wisdom we should preserve the truth, cultivate letting go, and train for peace. There was a, a, a discussion the Buddha had about what it means to preserve the truth. And this, I think, is interesting because it, it connects to this, it connects the, um, what we can call the conventional realm of truth, of eyewitness testimony and you know, what we remember and what we believe. 
and to it 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 kind of bridges that with the uh the, what we can think of as the ultimate truth of impermanent unreliable not self and he suggests in this um in this teaching that the way to preserve the truth he he said that as we um as we make conclusions about the world as we live in the world we we kind of take information in and um, believe things, believe things to be true based on different sources, based on faith, based on uh, reasoning, based on what we've heard from other places or tradition, so like based on what our culture tells us, um, or based on whether we like it or not. And the Buddha said that we might have something accepted out of faith or we might have believed something because of tradition or because we've reasoned it out or even because we've experienced it. And he says the way to preserve truth is to acknowledge that we understand that how we believe things is a process. And so if we um, believe something is true based on the fact that we've reasoned it, we can preserve the truth by, not by saying this is true, but by saying I have reasoned this and believe it. I believe this is true because of reasoning. Or I believe this is true because this is how I remember experiencing it. Or I believe this is true because of faith. So that that there's a, a, a recognition of the basically unreliable nature of our minds and an acknowledgement of what the source of what our beliefs are. This, he says, is preserving the truth. And it's, it, I think he says, um, one who preserves the truth says, my faith is thus. I've reasoned thus. My tradition says thus. Rather than, this is true. This alone is true. So I think that's an interesting piece for us to really take in that so much of what we believe we know is mostly opinion and view. It's so hard to see, it is so hard to see that the way we orient towards the world is largely through opinion and not really direct reality. In his continuation of this um, teaching around truth, he says, and how do we discover the truth? Actually, this, is a, this was a, a conversation he was having with um, a student. And the student comes along and says, well, how do, I, how do I preserve the truth? How do I discover the truth? And I just told you what the Buddha said about preserving the truth. In discovery of truth, the Buddha basically says, you have to look at your experience directly. You have to really look at your experience and be very honest about where it's coming from. Again, preserving the truth by being honest that, you know, as we really start to look at our experience, as we watch with mindfulness what's going on in our mind, we see views and opinions influencing our, our perceptions. And so we can start to see directly how our minds are working and that they, they, they have that deceptive nature and that they, they, are, they are not only deceptive... Um, but there, there, there is an unreliable um, 
they are deceptive and they um, convince us that they are not deceptive. (laughs) They are profoundly deceptive. (laughs) So, but we can start to see that. We can start to see, as we watch the processes of our mind, we start to see just how impermanent, how in a flux they are, how unreliable they are. And so this is the discovery of truth. The direct seeing and knowing. The direct seeing of how our minds fool us, of how our minds deceive us and delude us. It's, it, it's very humbling. It's... Um, sometimes, some, you know, we can't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> when we start to see just how deceptive our minds are. You know, it's not, it's, we're not alone. We are all in this boat. It's like a human deception. It's a, it's a, it's a human process of de- deception. And so it's not, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, I do talk to people when they start to discover this and they say, how come, you know, it's like, I must be so stupid that I can't see this. It's like, we all are blind to this. It is not easy to see through this deceptive nature of our minds. And so this is the discovery of truth, to turn and look at our experience directly. And this takes resolve. It takes this resolve to, I want to understand my experience. I want to understand how suffering is put together. I want to understand how my mind is deceiving me. And so it takes resolve. It takes a commitment to keep coming back. And partly it takes a commitment because it is so humbling. It is so humbling to see this. It is, it's humbling to see just how much at, at, the depths of the levels that we confuse ourselves and delude ourselves about what will make us happy. I mean, the, 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 the whole structure of the way we live our lives is, you know, a lot of it has to do with greed and aversion. You know, if I get this thing, I'll be happy. If I get rid of this thing, that's what, I'll be, finally I'll be happy. Well, I know I'm not going to be happy forever, but I'll be happy for a while, and then while I'm happy there, I can figure out the next thing I can be happy with. And, and so we, we make these bargains with ourselves, trying to find happiness through getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. And those very processes are deceptive. I mean, greed itself is deceptive. Greed, you know, it... it, it um, the, the story of greed is this thing will make me happy. This experience, this state of mind, this objective thing, having this person think this thing about me, being seen in this way, that is what will make me happy. So greed wants that thing. But the deluding... Um, the delusion of greed, the deluding piece of greed is that greed is telling us and I'll be happy once I get that thing. And so in this usual way of behaving in our world, trying to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want, we are buying into delusion. And so this resolve to practice, it is like so hard to see this. It's not just a one-time commitment. You know, this is the problem with New Year's resolutions, you know. We, we, on New Year's Day, we say, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to not get caught in the internet, whatever. And, you know, we make that resolve on New Year's Day, and it's kind of like we pick it up and go, yeah, you know. It's like we pick up the entire year in that one moment and say, I'm going to do that, and then we forget about it. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it lasts a day or two, maybe a week if we're lucky. But what resolve actually takes 
is a, an ongoing connection with that resolve. It's not a one-time thing. You know, it's like, it's like the way we make effort in our practice. You know, sometimes we, we think we'll sit down and it's like, yep, I'm going to be mindful for this entire sitting. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be mindful for 40 minutes. Well, how long does it last? I mean, two breaths maybe, and the mind wanders off. The way we can apply our resolve is to just keep being connected to it keeping connected to it, like what we can do in our meditation, rather than sitting down and saying, I'm going to be present for the entire sitting. Maybe we try to make the, maybe we resolve, I'm going to be present for a breath. I'll be present for one breath. We can probably do that. You know, that's about as much time as we can commit to something. And then if we remember to do it again, and again, and again, it's like, it's like hand over hand. We can get through more, more moments of mindfulness in that like short moments many times. And this is the way resolve works, I think. It's not like you know, building a platform and saying, yes, I'm going to have that thing forever. The illusion of permanence of our resolves. We have to keep committing, keep recommitting. Resolves can function a couple different ways in practice. They can be kind of an overall orientation. You know, it's like the, the kind of the, there was a moment in my life where this um, resolve to practice came very strong. It was after I had been practicing for about two months or so. <clears throat> And I had a really um, powerful experience of the power of the practice. And that moment, there was a deep resolve. Like, I'm, yeah, this is really important. It is, the, I, I have got to do this. this. There's no way I can't do this. And so there was kind of an orientation that happened in that moment. It's like an orientation towards the practice that happened. That's a form of resolve that orients us, kind of guides us in a direction. But it, that's, that's not enough. But that can kind of shape the, the direction. You know, it can shape our choices if we stay connected to that. It's kind of like an intention almost. If we stay connected to that intention, it can shape our choices. And certainly it did for me, shape my choices over, well, I don't know, when did that happen? 18 years ago, <laughs> something like that. You know, it has really shaped my choices. And so there can be a way in which resolve has that kind of orienting, orienting us in a direction. You know, we can see this in our, in our, in our lives, kind of in the ordinary sense around resolves. You know, you know, one of, you know, we might resolve to go to graduate school. You know, that sets in motion something. You know, it, it, it sets that into motion and our choices and our... It's like our, everything that happens becomes kind of funneled in that direction because we've put that into motion. And so similarly with the practice... You know, as we have that kind of sense of, yes, that's the direction, our choices can be funneled in that direction. There's also this moment-to-moment exploration of resolve that I was talking about, even just down to the, you know, half a breath. I'm going to be present for half a breath. Let's see, do I want to talk about this other... I guess the other piece I'll say, I'll just say this, this last piece around resolve. Um, you know, as we kind of orient ourselves towards the practice, like, you know, with that kind of maybe a sense of a, a larger resolve, we can sometimes have the sense or the idea or the belief, you know, maybe a somewhat mistaken view that this means that I have to be doing particular things. Like, 
if my life is oriented around practice, this means I need to be sitting X number of hours a day. It means to be, I need to be going to retreats. I need to be doing this or doing that. And, you know, so we, we might have these ideas that, you know, that kind of resolve means I have to pick something up, you know, pick up somebody's idea, our idea of what it means to commit my life to the practice. And um, I want to kind of shake that up a little bit because the way the practice works, what I've seen in my own life, is that whatever is happening in this moment, whatever's happening in this moment, it might be having lunch with a friend. It might be sitting in front of a computer at work. It might be driving down the freeway. Whatever's happening in this moment can be a place for the practice to flourish right now. We don't have to be doing anything else. We do have to commit to waking up, to being mindful. That's what the resolve is about. The resolve is about how can I be mindful in this circumstance? How can I be mindful right now? Is it possible? It's always possible. It is always possible. And that's what the resolve is about. It's not about sitting a certain number of hours a day or going on so many days of retreats a year. It's about waking up now. And that is possible right now. So, that's probably enough for me. Any comments from you about truth and resolve? Yeah. I was reminded. Is this one? Mannequin is. is okay. I was reminded of an article I read. I can't remember where on um, how things like Fitbit actually work. Fitbit. I those are those little things you wear that tell you how many steps you've taken oh, and okay. how uh-huh. much what your heart rate is and yada yada yada. And they said if you took if you wore three of them, you would get different number of steps from all three. So they are not accurate. Their purpose is as a mindfulness bell, which you would call a mindfulness <laughs> bell, that you are continually reminded of. Oh, I did less than. You, Less yesterday than yesterday. Or more than yesterday uh-huh. or whatever. So they're, um, as, as part of a activating a resolve, you were saying day by day, oh, yes. minute uh-huh. by minute, yeah. uh-huh. this is uh, one for exercise, that, that all this technology out there is actually using some of the same principles. <laughs> you just have to pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> If I'm, I'm all for props that help yeah, us to that, be I was thinking of that when I read that. It's like you said all for props. That yeah, you know that would actually work. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone else? the word wisdom a lot and it was like part of a definition and I'm wondering what like what it means that's a great <laughs> question I had the same question and you know it's kind of like wisdom it's like must be like you know really big or I don't know it seems so grand or something in this uh, it, wisdom really can be boiled down to in a simple way Um, a recognition or an understanding of what in our experience takes us towards suffering and what takes us towards happiness. So it's essentially a distinction. Wisdom is a discernment about what is skillful in terms of creating true happiness in our lives and what is unskillful, what will lead us to suffering. And the, the, um, 
the simplest uh, statement of that is that states of mind rooted in greed, in aversion, in delusion will create suffering. And states of mind rooted in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, actions that come out of states of mind rooted in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion will create guide the guide the our mind and body towards more ease, more peace, more happiness. And so that in a nutshell, I mean that's probably the the most concise definition of wisdom. Now, it has different like layers to it. Um initially wisdom you know, there's, and there's many, many wisdom teachings of the Buddha to you know, help to point us to that kind of nugget of greed, aversion, delusion are, are what keep us trapped. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion help to free us. And there's many different um, teachings, you know, the, the Four Noble Truths, the um, Dependent Origination. Oh, there's, you know, there's many lists that kind of all point us in this direction. Um, and so, you know, we hear, we hear information. The f- that's a kind of a first level of wisdom, is that we hear, I mean, even just this, you know, greed, aversion, delusion will tend to c- reproduce more greed, aversion, delusion and keep us trapped on a cycle of greed, aversion, and delusion and lead to anxiety, remorse, uh, confusion, anger, all of these states that just basically don't feel very good and keep us kind of miserable. And so um, the first thing, the first level of wisdom is hearing. Hearing the information. And then as we hear that information, it may kind of be, we may get curious about it. It's like, huh, okay. Greed doesn't make me happy really. And maybe we can think about that a little bit and, and see an experience in our lives where we see, yeah, you know, I wanted that thing and I got it and, you know, where's the happiness now? You know, so we might, we might start to reflect a little bit around what we've heard. That's a, a next level down of wisdom that is kind of based on our own a capacity for thinking and reflection. It's, it's kind of like the first part is information. You know, we get information. That's the first level of wisdom is just hearing the information. The second level of wisdom is kind of more reflective. We've thought about it. Does it make sense to us? This level of wisdom is necessary to actually start to engage with it. And then uh, as we explore it, I mean, the, the wisdom teachings of the Buddha have in them, I mean, that, that what I said there of, you know, greed, aversion, and delusion will lead to suffering. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion will lead to happiness. That's kind of a statement. But embedded in the wisdom of the Buddha is also, you need to look at your own experience to see the truth of this. So it's not just about believing some statement of fact. So the, the, the wisdom teachings of the Buddha also include this investigation of our own experience. And so as we reflect on these teachings, the teachings include practices. So as we, f- we reflect on the fact that the Buddha said, look at your... One of the, another simple form of the teachings, he says, yes, getting what we want makes us happy, but... Look at that. How far does the happiness extend? So he asks us to look at our experience, to investigate our experience with respect to greed, with respect to aversion, with respect to delusion. Start where we are, look at it, and see what, what's going on. And so as we engage with that, as we um, start to practice with that, the next level of wisdom of actually understanding how greed creates suffering in our own experience, directly seeing that. That's a level of wisdom that is kind of, it, it becomes part of our bones when we understand that directly for ourselves. But it's all, it's like it's all the same um, 
uh, information in a way. So it's, you know, it's like at this level of the information, you're hearing greed. Greed creates more greed and leads to suffering. At a level of reflection, you start thinking about how might that be? And, you know, I've seen this happen in my life. I've seen getting something and then, you know, 10 days later, it's like, you know, I'm looking for something else to be happy with. And so we might start to engage. And then when you actually see, in your own direct experience, you actually see how the greed itself creates a contraction and a sense of dissatisfaction in the very wanting. And that the, when, we, when you see for yourself, I mean, the, the kind of one, of the, one of the insights, one of the key insights that can be kind of mind-blowing when you really see it, I mean, it's not just to be told it, but when you really see it is that if you, if you watch greed as a phenomenon, as you pay attention, oh, this is what greed feels like. Oh, okay, greed is like this. And it doesn't feel good. You feel that pretty quickly when you feel into greed. And so right there you see, wow, greed, you know, even the act of greed is not happiness. It's pretty clear that's not happiness, having the greed. And then you might watch and see if the greed, um, if you watch long enough, you might see the greed actually let go without getting what you want. Now this, the, the, this is part of the delusion of greed. Greed is not going to tell you, if, I go, if greed goes away, you'll be really happy. Greed is not going to tell you that. Greed is going to tell you, if I get that thing, you'll be really happy. But if you actually hang out with the state of greed and watch it, and it disappears because it's impermanent like everything else, you watch it disappear, you feel a happiness of release from like being held in a vice grip of greed that is so directly and immediately satisfying and easeful that you know so deeply in your bones, oh my gosh, this, this is a completely different way of understanding my experience. So that's a kind of wisdom that is um, kind of more embodied or, or internalized. It's kind of internalized wisdom. So... That was a kind of long answer, but <laughs> I, I thought a lot about that question because it's like, I just didn't get it. <laughs> so I think it's a great question. And it's time to stop. So thank you all for being here and participating.